Thank you, worship team. Can I, can, I just, can I just brag on a couple of people on the worship team? You don't know this, but Alex plays the drums because we needed Alex to play the drums. Alex didn't know how to play the drums before that, really. AJ? AJ, man, AJ just came out of nowhere picking up the guitar. He's not... He's, and, and he's never, that's, is that the first time you played electric in a service? Uh, it's probably first real time. Yeah? First real time. All the, all the others were not real. Um, Eric, Eric's never played the bass before the last couple of weeks. I, I just want to say thanks. Thank you guys, really, for, for your dedication and um, using your gifts to, for God. Well, we're going to close out this series on true worship, and I've titled my message today, Characteristics of Worship. My message is obviously already at 23 minutes according to the clock, so I'm a little nervous if I can get this done in seven minutes. (laughs) But we looked at Paul and Silas, and we really learned that worship, it's not about how we feel. They worshiped God when they were hurting. It was not a natural thing. They had to grab a hold of how they were feeling and worship God. We looked at the widow and her two cents worth, and we we really found out that that worship has a sacrificial component to it. Um, She she gave her all. The the woman with the alabaster box, um, for her it was all about how much she'd been forgiven, excuse me, and Jesus said, the one who's, who is, loves much has been forgiven much. And when we come in contact with how we have been forgiven, you know, when we've been saved a long time, it's easy to not think of ourselves as a no good, dirty, rotten sinner anymore. But you know what? Without Jesus, we're all a bunch of no good, dirty, rotten sinners. That's all there is to I don't care how nice you are. You're nice people. But without Jesus, without his grace, without his forgiveness, we're all in the same boat. Abraham learned that sometimes God asks you for that most important thing. He asks you to lay that thing down in worship for him and trust him that he's going to uh, make everything turn out right. Today I want us to look at Jesus and these characteristics of his worship. And uh, I want to start with Philippians because Paul tells us a little bit about who this Jesus really is. It makes a difference. So Philippians 2, starting at verse 9, he says, Therefore God exalted him, speaking of Jesus, to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So literally, it's everything Uh, In this world, the things that we see, but also in the spiritual uh, world as well, the unseen world, those things all bow in worship to him. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, you and I, we read that word Lord, and we just think God. It includes Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit. You know, we just say Lord. That's kind of our our catchphrase for all of it. It's just going to catch them all, right? That, that when a Jew would read that word, it's Jehovah, Jehovah. And so when, when, it, when Paul said 
Jesus is Lord, that God literally says everyone will acknowledge Jesus as Lord. It's Jesus as Jehovah. He is making the connection to Jesus as God. That was very critical in their thinking to the glory of God the Father. Jesus went from, in their understanding, just a man to literally being the only name under heaven by which man shall be saved. This was radically radical thinking. Jesus is Lord. He's Jehovah God. But although he's God, he became a servant. He became obedient even to the death on the cross. He's the son of God and he worshiped. God. We're going to see the characteristics of Jesus' worship as we look at these things today. I'm going to look at four of them. The first one is this. The first characteristic is regularity. Regularity. <clears throat> you know, anything that we really are committed to, anything that we really love to, love to do, okay, we want to do it with regularity. You know, when, when, I, when I get into something, I want to do it all the time. When I really feel like, <clears throat> man, this is my thing, I want to do it. I want to do it all the time. Nobody has to remind me to do those things. I just want to do them. And there are three things that we look at when we read the Gospels about Jesus' life that are regularities. The first one is this, the temple. The temple was a regular occurrence in Jesus' life. Now, if you are <clears throat> a faithful Jew, the temple was an important part of your life. And in fact, most Jews would take three trips to Jerusalem every year. If they were able to do so, they would go to Jerusalem three times a year. They would go the first time, uh, the, one of those times was the Passover. The Passover, uh, the week of Passover was seven days. And so you would go to Jerusalem <clears throat> and you would worship at the temple for those days. We also know that there's a Feast of Pentecost that uh, Jews would travel to Jerusalem. <clears throat> now, I want you to think about this. Three times a year, you've got to take these trips. The Feast of Pentecost was 50 days long. That's a long time. And then there's the Feast of Tabernacles. I don't know how many of you like camping but if you were a Jew in the first century and you enjoyed camping, the Feast of Tabernacles would be your favorite, your favorite Jewish celebration because they would go and set up tents in, in view of the temple, which to them also represented the original tabernacle, so they would feel like they were celebrating Moses leading the children uh, out of Egypt into the wilderness before they got to the promised land. They would do that for eight days. Now, I mean, camping, camping is fun, but I'm sure they didn't have a screened-in tent. You know, I'm sure, I'm sure if there were bugs, they got in there. Um, and, and I'm sure that, you know, when they would go for the Feast of Tabernacles, it would be the most humid week of the year. You know, you know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm sure that would be the case. But when we look at Jesus' life, Luke 21, Luke says in verse 37, each day, key... Each day, Jesus was teaching at the temple, and in the evening, he went out to spend the night on the hill called Mount of Olives. Jesus spent time, when he was in Jerusalem, 
which he would go to Jerusalem for those celebrations, he would go daily to the temple. He would go every single day. Because where most Jews lived, they couldn't go to the temple every day. Oh, there was activity at the temple every day. But when you were a Jew that lived out in Galilee somewhere, you couldn't do that. So when you went to Jerusalem for uh, the Feast of Tabernacles or for the Feast of Pentecost or for Passover, you would go to the temple every day, and that's what Jesus did. The thing about the temple is that in the temple dwelled the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, think of a, of a wooden box that is layered in gold. And there's a, a lid on that box, and on top of that lid, there are two seraphim, which are angels, and their wings are extended out toward one another. And between those, the wings of those angels, the Bible says that there was a cloud that, that literally was, it was in between those angels, just a, a cloud, just a, you know, obviously it wasn't something that was very big, but it was a cloud. And that cloud was the physically, the physical manifest presence of Jehovah God on the face of the earth. And so when people came to Jerusalem, they wanted to go into the temple because in the temple was the presence of God. Even their enemies understood this. Even their enemies knew that, that there was something to do with their God that surrounded the ark and the temple and that God's presence was there. So they would go and they would spend time there. That's what Jesus did. But what about all the times then that you're not in Jerusalem? Because you don't, if you don't live in Jerusalem, I'm sure the taxes were higher. I'm sure the real estate was higher. So, you know, I think I'm going to live somewhere way out in, in Galilee that, that's, that's going to allow me to carry on, you know, my business or my work. And it's not as expensive to live. What about out then? Out there? The Gospels on 10 different occasions say that Jesus went to this place called the synagogue. What's the synagogue? The synagogue is, is sort of like a Jewish community center, and it was a place where people would come to hear the reading of uh, the first five books of the Old Testament. They would come to be taught about Jehovah God. It was the local Jewish worship gathering. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, it says, Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among them. Jesus made it a habit of going to synagogue on a regular basis, and it happened to also be a great opportunity for him to actually speak because that was allowed. They would refer to Jesus as teacher or rabbi. Why? Because he taught in the synagogues. He taught as one having authority. And then there's one other thing that he did very regularly, and that was he got alone in the presence of God, away from the crowds, away from his disciples, and he worshiped and prayed. In Luke chapter 5, verse 16, Luke says, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. So he went to the temple regularly. He went to the synagogue regularly. 
And he often got alone and spent time in the presence of God, praying and worshiping. Not just in the difficult times. When I say that, I think of what John and and Janice have just gone through. It's not just during the difficult times that we that we come to church. And there are lots of people that, that and, and God uses those difficult times to draw them to his, himself, but as followers of Christ, as believers in Christ, as the body of, of Christ, we don't just come to church when we are going through difficult or challenging circumstances. And I'm so glad that when somebody, when that's the case, God doesn't say, hey, this is just for people that, you know, that come all the time. He willingly says, hey, whosoever will, come. I'm so glad that he doesn't condemn us, but that he opens his arms up to love us and to accept us. People often will begin to search for God during those difficult times. But I want us to ask ourselves, is worship a regular occurrence in my life? Or do we say, you know, I just... I, I just can't make getting together, you know, uh, uh, one day a week. Um, I, I, just, I, I just don't have, it just doesn't fit my calendar. It doesn't fit my lifestyle. I just can't, I just can't bring myself to do that. I want to encourage you. Because you see, the more that we do anything in life, the easier it becomes to do that thing. People will, will comment to me, how, how do you get up in the morning and run? Well, the, the more often you do it, the easier it is. And in fact, when you do it with somebody, it becomes even easier. The easiest day of the week for me to run is Saturday because I usually run with three or four other people. And it's real easy to get up when you know those people are waiting for you to get there so that you can run together. It becomes something that you do together. Worship is the same thing. When we know that others are going to be waiting for me, they're going to be wondering where I am. It's easier for me to get up and to do that thing together as a community. The second characteristic that Jesus had was one of posture. When I say posture, does it make you just sort of want to put your shoulders back and, you know, sort of suck your gut in a little bit and, you know, when you, that, that word posture is just a loaded word, you know, and some of you, when you grew up, you were, your mom tried to teach you good posture. My mother had three boys. She just wanted us to make it through dinner without somebody losing a finger, okay? It was, I I mean, I mean, in my, if you could just, if you could just chew with your mouth closed, my mom was happy, okay? And, and not all of my, my extended family have conquered that, you know? I mean, I mean, we, we're, we come out of the, we come out of the holler, okay, in my family, and yesterday I was back visiting the holler, okay? And it's very real, and it's still there. I know a few weeks ago I said there's 5G out. You remember when I said that a few weeks ago, that there's 5G out there? It ain't there, okay? It's not in the holler. You know, I was going to post something to Facebook, a picture of the, the cemetery, and it was beautiful. I got some great pictures, and I looked at my phone, and it's like, it didn't even have one box. It, it, it didn't even say no service. It just had a smiley face, like just laughing at me, you know. Um, but 
That's where I come from. That's a side note. But posture. It doesn't just mean how we stand or how we sit. It means attitude. It means our approach or our opinion. Now, especially in the first service, man, and it was, boy, it was a, it was a, there's a lot of people here in first service. It was, it, it felt like, like church used to feel, forgive me. And I love this second service and I, I love that we're doing it, but, um, it felt a little bit different. And I, I know a lot of them, uh, some of them were raised in, in church as Catholics. They were raised growing up as Catholics. Now, the, the thing, okay, a lot of times Catholic people struggle with guilt issues. And I said, you don't have to raise your hands if you were raised Catholic. One of them felt so guilty he had to raise his hand. <laughs> and I wanted to say, I wanted to point that out, but I did not point that out that that was like, you know, it's a guilt mechanism, but I didn't, I didn't do that. I was really good. But, uh, but Catholics, posture is important. Have you ever been in a, in a Catholic service, especially if you weren't raised in one, and you're like, why are these people, what are they tripping on before they get into their seats? They literally, they, they move up to their pew, and it's like they trip and half fall down. And you're like, is there carpet that's, you know, what's going on here? And then you realize it's not even carpet, and, it's, and yet it's, they're, they're genuflecting. Okay, and they have different rules of halfway down and all the way down. When you take communion, when you, when you take communion, you, you go all the way down. Okay, but if you're just, if you're, if you're getting in, you know, coming up the aisle and you're going to go sit down, you're going to go halfway down because you are bowing to what they call the tabernacle. Okay, and it says something, and I wasn't raised that way, I don't know about what that means. So I did what everybody does, right? I Googled it, okay? I Googled it, and I, I, found, I found a guy that I, I just have to say I'm really appreciative for Father Mike from Duluth. Father Mike from Duluth uh, has got a YouTube channel, who knew, right? And he, he explained some stuff that was very helpful to me. And he said the reason that Catholics genuflect, there are three reasons. The first one is an act of humility, that what they are doing is acknowledging you are God, I am not God. That makes sense. When we bow, we are saying to God, you're God, I'm not God. The next thing that, that, that this genuflecting does is it, is it communicates, because it says something, it's a posture of action. It says that we are committed to your service. Anybody like, uh, you know, period pieces, you know, the Knights of the Round Table, you know, do you like that? I, I, Vince, come on, brother. Vince is from England. That's, that's, our, that's our jam, right? We, we love that stuff, you know? And the, the, the king pulls out the sword and he lays the sword on the shoulder. Uh, those of you that are Lord of the Rings fans, uh, there was a moment in the first uh, movie, The Fellowship of the Rings, where Aragon comes forward and he kneels down and he says, by my life or by my death, you have my sword is the gist of the rest of it. He's, he's committing himself to action. And the third thing is that genuflecting is an act of love. 
I, I, I didn't ask Benjamin's permission. I'm really sorry that I didn't ask this permission. But, but years ago, uh, uh, there was a special day in our family's life. It was my mom and dad's 50th anniversary. And, and we did what every woman wants to do on her 50th anniversary. Go to a Brewer game. My dad's a baseball freak. So we go to a brew, and that day, earlier that day, um, Benjamin had it all set up that he was going to propose to Amy that day. And was, I, I think it actually was up in Green Bay at the Arboretum. Was that where it was, honey? And so we got to be involved, okay? So mom and I, we get to be involved. We, we got all the, the picnic basket and the food and the, you know, the sparkling grape juice and the glasses, and we got all the stuff. And so he tells us where we're supposed to lay it all out, okay? So we go out there and we lay this stuff all out and make it look like it's prepared. And then we've got to get out of there so that she doesn't see us coming because if she, or see us out there because she's going to know something's up, right? And so we've got to, you know, we're like limping and we're, you know, you're just trying to get out of there and, 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 you know, and then you're like, you want to be able to see, you know, so you're as far away as you can be and see and still have stuff in between you and them. And you're just looking for that moment. What, what's the moment? When he bows on his knee, gets down on one knee, and he says, will you marry me? That moment when a man gets on his knee, that is an act of love. That's what the idea of posture in worship is all about. Remember when, when, when you take out your, um, uh, you take out at Christmas time your nativity scene? And you've got, you've got the sheep and you've got the camels, you know, you've got the cow, you've got the G baby Jesus and the manger and Mary and Joseph and the shepherds, you've got the angel. What else do you have? Magi. The magi. You, you have a wise man or two, right? And, and, but when we read the scriptures, that was two years later, okay? So two years later, the wise men the, the Magi show up at Jesus' house. And in our house right now, we have a two-year-old that runs our house, okay? Runs through our house. Sorry, that's, that's, I said that wrong. He runs through our house, okay? And, and, and you say, Levi, come here. And he screams no, and he runs away. And he's got, you know, generally speaking, he's got, you know, he's got a, a, a dump truck or, or some other construction equipment thing, toy in his hand, and screaming at the top of his lungs. Imagine how spiritual it was when the Magi showed up, okay? And, and that was Jesus running through the house screaming no, okay? He was a two-year-old. He was a two-year-old. You couldn't get Levi to stand still if the president came and bowed in front of him. He would scream no, and he'd run around with a truck in his hand. And that, but it says in the Gospels, it says that they came to the house, Matthew 2.11. They saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. They had a posture of worship. Eight different times in the book of Revelation... It says that the 24 elders 
And the 24 elders, it could be a couple of different things. Some believe that it's the, the, it represents the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 disciples, equaling 24, or it's just representative of all the believers together, that they, 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 they're on thrones and they have crowns and they would step off those thrones, they would take off their crowns, and they would bow or prostrate themselves in worship. Eight different times in the book of Revelation, it mentions that. So, so this idea of, of bowing in worship, prostrating ourselves. In Luke chapter 22, verse 39, it says, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. This was the night he was betrayed. This was the moment that he was born for. This was the moment that he was sent to earth for. And how was he responding? In a posture of worship to his heavenly father. Not my will be done. He said, I don't want to die. Take this cup from me, but not my will but yours be done. So the Messiah, the Lord, Jehovah, fully God, fully man, knelt. And it said something specific. He said, I acknowledge you as God, my Father. He said, I am committed to your service. If by my life or by my death, I will serve you. Not my will, but yours be done. And he said, I love you, Father. The third characteristic is attitude. I just finished reading a book called Grit by Anna Duckworth, and she talks about how attitude will always be more valuable than, than ability. In fact, in football right now, I, I, I'm just, you know, I'm caught up in some preseason stuff, you know, and getting ready for the football season. They say the greatest ability is availability. I love that saying. The greatest ability is availability. Attitude will win over ability. You can have all the ability in the world, but if you don't have the right attitude, you are not going to win. In fact, you will fail ultimately. Paul tells us that we should have the same attitude as Jesus did. He tells us what this attitude is like in Philippians chapter 2. He says in verse 6, he said, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. In other words, Jesus laid down the benefit of his deity. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. If anybody had the right to have an attitude of why is this happening to me, it would have been Jesus. But that's not what he did. Even though he was Jehovah God, God in the flesh, he humbled himself, he became obedient. He didn't want to die, but he came, became obedient, not, and not just to death, but the worst death that could be imagined by humanity in the first century, crucifixion. 
He said, not my will but yours be done. And he worshiped his father by surrendering himself to the will of the father. Are we surrendered in our worship? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in the second half of verse 19, he said, you are not your own, you were bought at a price, therefore honor God with your bodies. What's our attitude? What's our posture in worship? Are we disinterested? Are we bored? Oh, I'm so tired. Or are we engaged in worship? Number four, the fourth characteristic is, the best way I can describe it is an, an objective. 1 Samuel chapter 4, the Ark of the Covenant has been captured by the Philistines in battle. Philistines are the arch enemies of Israel. In chapter 5, the Philistines basically start, get, they break, start breaking out with, with tumors. Well, you think, okay, all right, so something's going on here. Well, then all of a sudden, their nation is infested with rats. They start adding two and two together and they realize because they have stolen the Ark of the Covenant that God is punishing them. And so they want to get rid of it. They want to they get rid of it so that, uh, that they, they don't have this, I'll say, curse being brought down on them. And as the Ark of the Covenant, this place where the manifest presence of God dwells, we read in 2 Samuel chapter 6, Verses 14 and 15, it says, Wearing a linen ephod, which is a priestly garment, that it says David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, and while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. So David put on basically a priestly garment, and he's worshiping the Lord. The people are shouting. The priests are blowing the trumpets. There's a, an incredible amount of excitement because the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, is coming back to Jerusalem. It's going to come back into the temple. This is what we've been waiting for. And David is dancing before the Lord. Now, we're not going to develop a dance team, just so in case anybody's wondering. But he, he doesn't care what anybody thinks. He goes home, and, and guess what happens? His wife greets him at the door, and she says, how could you? How could you? Do you realize what those servant girls are thinking about you right now? They have watched you do this thing. How in the world could you do that? And here's what David says. In verse 21, he said, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. And I will be humiliated in my own eyes. David didn't care about what anybody else thought of him while he was worshiping the Lord. I'd have loved to have David. I, man, when I was a kid, I, I, I've told, I remember sitting in that third row with my parents and my dad playing with my ears, you know, during church. And, and I felt like every, every teenage set of eyes in that church was on the back of my head. That's why I'm bald. <laughs> they burned a hole in my hair. 
You want me to tell you the truth? People aren't thinking about what you're doing. Do you know what they're thinking about? What they're doing. They're not thinking about, oh boy, they're getting pretty radical in worship, or, or how will anybody think about that? They're thinking about what people think about them. That's human nature. That's what we do, and we're really good at it. David did not care. Didn't care what anyone thought of him as he worshiped the Lord. He was thrilled to worship God, even if it meant he looked undignified. Galatians 1.10, Paul says this, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul said it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks when you're worshiping the Lord. You're not trying to please them anyway. You are trying to please God. Even if they are thinking about you, who cares? You're trying to please God. As Jesus hung on the cross... Just, I want you to just picture it. The crucifixion, the, 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 the cat of nine tails, his flesh just ripped, ripped from his body. Very possibly organs exposed. The Romans were experts at this. They knew how much someone could endure and still live long enough to make this really a lasting thing. Nails through his, his wrists and his feet, hanging on the cross, pushing up for every breath, excruciating pain. They'd pulled out his beard. They had struck him in the face. I imagine people coming up and spitting on him. And when you do that in disgust, you, man, you work one up, okay? You, you, you can really make it humiliating. It says they mocked him. They said things. I imagine they, they thought up the worst things they could think of. The Pharisees and the scribes, they, they said, listen, you, you wanted to save people. Save yourself, buddy. They were using his own words and actions against him. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Scripture says that there were legions of angels waiting for the word. Madison, it's a good thing I wasn't Jesus. I'd have called them. I'd have said, come get them, boys. I would have. I couldn't have done it. But Jesus worshiped God the Father by surrendering himself. He had an objective. It was the will of the Father. Because you see, the Bible says God would that none would perish, but that all would come to repentance, even those idiots that were crucifying Jesus right there. That was Jesus' objective. We've done this study about worship. I believe that God calls us. I believe that God created us to be worshipers. In Genesis 2, where God, I, I mentioned it earlier, I, I, 
I'd never thought of this before, but he, he when God created Adam and Eve to, to, to work the garden and take care of it, to worship and obey, and he goes right into, but don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because if you do, you will surely die. If we get away from worshiping and obeying God, it leads us to spiritual death. And yet we've got to be reminded to worship. We've been created to worship. I'm going to invite you to stand with us. And we're just going to take a few minutes. And we're just going to worship the Lord together. I'll close in prayer. But I just want to invite you. You know, when, when, when the room is packed, it's a little easier to, to, to you know, sort of blend in with the, you know, with the woodwork and stuff. But let's just worship the Lord. Let's just put our attention on him. Let's just take up a posture of worship. And as they lead us, just let it out. Let it out and worship him. And then we'll close in prayer.